Aileen, I would Lucky. not put a slip dress <laughs> on you. And no, like, that's why I never wore a slip dress. <laughs> no, yeah, never will. Yeah, not gonna, gonna happen. Any bra, I have to wear a bra. Yeah, yeah, I don't have that problem. I don't have Alyssa. You and me, we never have to worry like, about. Like, there's that. no problem reading the words on this shirt because they're not <laughs> curved flat. in any way. It's just <laughs> I'll straighten mine out so you can see them. Oh, there was a seven in there. <laughs> I didn't see that. Hello, and welcome to Fiction Between Friends, a podcast dedicated to books and book lovers like us. I'm Josephine Angelini. I'm Lauren Sanchez. I'm Alyssa Hilfinger. And I'm Aileen Calderon. We're four childhood friends from the suburbs of Massachusetts. We've always loved to read almost as much as we love to talk to each other. We started this podcast as a way to celebrate how a really good book can come into your life and change it. So if you're looking for fun and engaging conversations about books, stick around. This is Fiction Between Friends, and we're glad you've joined us. Welcome back. This is Season 2, Episode 14. I'm Josephine Angelini, and joining me are my dear friends Aileen Calderon. Hi. Lauren Sanchez. Hi. And Alyssa Hilfinger. Hello. And just a quick announcement. We're going to be going on vacation, so we'll be taking a hiatus until the end of August. And if you're looking for something to listen to while we're gone, this episode is sponsored by our friends at Book Talk Podcast. Looking for a new way to read more books or get more out of the books you're reading? Join Book Talk Podcast, your weekly podcast book club. Find Book Talk Podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Oof, I made it through without a mistake. Unbelievable. Have you guys been keeping up on the comments? Do you guys know Emma, like mm-hmm. one of our, our usual commenters? I have to say thank you to her because she left all of these. She did like a 14-page spreadsheet of different ideas, stuff that I, as an author, not for the podcast, can do for TikToks. And they're oh. amazing. Oh my gosh, hire Can we hire her? Wow. <laughs> it That's was amazing. so great. She let she gave me all of these great suggestions about like, oh, and then you could do like this little thing all set up with boxes and stuff so that ADD me like can really understand it. I was like, oh yeah, I can do a, a one like it was just great. And she had links to examples of the stuff that I was so impressed with what she did. And just so that That's other amazing. I know she's like, Emma's the best. Yay. You know what's not great? Mm. What? The Supreme Court. <laughs> it's really Sorry. pissing me off right now. Oh, my fucking God. Yep. Yeah. Roe v. Wade was just overturned. I feel <sighs> like we're all really sick of talking about it and really tired. But also, it's so important to talk about and figure out what we can do because it's just so depressing and awful. Every time I look at my daughter, I just sit there going, what other rights are they going to take away from her? You know, what were things that I've taken for granted my whole life? Well, of course, women are allowed to do that. And did you guys read that Clarence Thomas sent out this open letter saying that he wanted to also roll back protection for um, birth control? Yep. Right. Birth control and gay marriage. marriage. He also, in a dissent with regard to a vaccine commentary, was re-reporting known misinformation oh, about, wh- I'm, I mean, for, for a person who is smart enough to be on the Supreme Court, he's an idiot. But I mean, willfully be, so. It has to be willfully so. Right. Like he's repeating misinformation and he's got to know it's false, right? Not necessarily. No. <laughs> Do I have too much faith in people like innate intelligence? Yeah. Yeah. I, think, I think it's all I think corrupt. So. Everybody has an agenda. Like everybody right. who was appointed by Trump, there's, a, there's an agenda there. They're rolling back women's rights. They're going after life on the planet as we know it, basically. It's terrifying. It really is. It, I just, it's so depressing to me, but, and I'm trying not to freak out about it too much. Just keep giving the money that I give to my, you know, my representatives, people that I want, and even just women's health organizations. Like there's, you know, Planned Parenthood has been getting a check for me since college when that was the only health care that I could afford. Do you guys know when I lived on Mott Street, I was right next to Planned Parenthood. And like, oh, really? I, yeah, it was basically like my one stop clinic. I would just go in there and get like checkups and stuff. And they do that for women. Like you can just walk in and get a free checkup, which was great for me because I, you know, I had to put myself through college and I was waiting tables all the way through it. I mean, my parents wanted to help me, but they couldn't. So, you know, I was 18 living in New York City, paying for it myself. And the, the healthcare was just like impossible for me to get. So I went to Planned Parenthood and they would give me like a full checkup. It was yeah, amazing. there's so much more than than what people think they are. Exactly. I mean, I never used that at the time. I wasn't, I know it's crazy, but my, especially my freshman year of college, I wasn't sexually active. So it was like 
that wasn't even the point for me. I was just like, I need a checkup. Like I need to make sure everything's okay. Well, I I think anyone who wants to donate should donate in the name of, I don't know, Clarence Thomas, Donald Trump, donate to any of these organizations in the name of some of these idiots that are. I feel like, and I feel like social media is part of the problem, but could also be part of the solution. Cause I think a lot of people are just posting shit on social media and there's lots of like People are posting lots of good information and lots of like smart things and entertaining things that are relevant to it. But also like you're just screaming into the void. Like if you're posting on social media, it's an echo chamber. Everyone who sees it, they're all people who agree with you. So you're not actually doing anything. If you're sharing information, yes, great. Links to places to donate, ways to take action, great. But like it's not a bad thing, but I feel like everyone needs to do more than that. And I feel like I, I was doing it at first, too, because that's like you need some place to channel your rage and your anger right, and right. like just let people know how you're feeling. But now I'm like, OK, what else can we do? How can we change this? Because I feel like shit like this keeps happening. And right. there are always activists out there who immediately like organize and go out and rally and make things happen. And you're like, cool, those people are going to change it. But I feel like we all need to get involved and do it because we've never been through something like this before. It's insane. Like there are places that you can donate money. Like I feel like that is like if you can afford to lowest lift, $10, $100, whatever you can do, donate Mm -hmm. money. Supporting local elections is super important. Like midterms are coming up. I was reading something the other day. Do you remember the Proud Boys? Mm -hmm. They're the ones who organized January 6th. They're a bunch of white supremacists. Yes. They've been so, listed as a terrorist group in other countries at this yeah, point. But wow. you know what they're doing now? They're running for local offices. Oh, they're right. getting involved in politics and people aren't really paying attention, aren't really talking about it, but they're winning. So they realized to actually like make the disgusting change they want. They need to ha- get in the government. They need to be a part of this political machine. So they're getting involved. So like local elections are so important. Midterms, super important. Like we can all just look at who is running in our areas and actually support people who are running in other states. Like we all live in blue states, but I mean, you can support politicians in other states too. You can make, you can do cold calls, which I tried that. I hate that. I don't like talking on the phone to begin with and calling strangers is so uncomfortable, but it is something that makes a difference. My husband actually, another easy thing to do is to write letters. It's been proven to change voter turnout. And usually the people who don't vote are the people who are going to help make well, what we think of as positive change. There's this group called Vote Forward. It's votefwd. I don't know if it's org or .com, but basically you sign up to write letters. And when I say write letters, you're not even writing a letter. You print out a bunch of form letters. Right. You write the person's name. You fill in a blank that says, I vote because, and you can write, I vote because my vote, I know my vote can make a difference. That's it. You sign your name, you address an envelope, put a stamp on it. And then it needs to be sent out by like the end of October. And it goes to like, there's a whole list of different like states that need people to write letters. There are like millions of letters that need to be written. So I haven't done it yet. I've, I, I've done it in previous elections, but I'm going to write a bunch of letters because I just feel like I need to do something. It's yeah, like it kills me just to sit here and watch. I need to do something. Agreed. Yeah, I'm trying to find the um, another one of my friends does uh, letter writing. And it's through a different organization than the one you mentioned. Um, But it's the same concept. You know, it's a form letter. It's really low hanging fruit is if you have the time to just be able to put letters together and mail them out. And you sit in front of Netflix and just fill in the blank letter. It's super easy. Is anybody Um, reading that? That's what concerns me. Like it's been proven. It's been proven to impact voter turnout. Like it's one of those things, the more letters that get sent, the better the chances are, because, yeah, it's like it affects like maybe two percent of the people that get the letters. So you, it's like a numbers game. It's like when I did cold calls, it was awful because everybody just hangs up on you because no one wants <laughs> yeah. to talk to you. So if you right. get through, if you make like 10 calls, and you get through to like one person. That's a huge success. So you just it's <laughs> being persistent. And- oh, years and years ago, Albert did that for Hillary. He was um he did like the cold calls, like just to get out the vote. It was before the primaries where Obama actually became the nominee. It was so funny. He was like, wow, that really stinks. I hate it. It's like five million people and you're ruining their day. And you just keep calling people and they're like, ah, go away. Click. Yeah, they're, they're like <laughs> yelling at you and don't want to talk to you. It's yeah, yeah. terrible. Yeah. Definitely not my thing. But... I thought that was so brave of him. <laughs> but it was funny. Well, like, I mean, I moved to a small town in New Jersey. And when I was living in New York, like I remember Obama making a big deal about like local community and local elections and how important it was. And like in New York City, it was just so big. You just didn't have that sense of community. And now I'm living in a smaller town and there are all these different groups organizing and like 
I went to a letter writing party yeah. last Sunday, which was just sitting in someone's backyard, filling out those form letters. And I was like, Perfect. okay, I did something, you know? So like, sometimes I feel like living in Los Angeles, I'm definitely, oh, thanks, Alyssa. I just got your stuff. Oh, did you send it, Alyssa? There's two. Yours, the one that you were doing was Vote Forward. So V-O-T-E-F-W-D dot org. Yep. And then there's also postcards to voters dot org, all spelled out. And when I clicked on one of them, it said, as a reminder, July 10th, the cost of a forever stamp is going up. So get out oh, to ooh. the post office and buy your forever stamps now. Oh, I'm going to hoard them. <laughs> I know. <laughs> forever stamps, not really forever. I know, right? It's for now. All right. Should we talk about books? I th- Yeah. Um, so we read Latin writers or Latinx. And I read a book that was recommended to me by my friend, Jacina. She had just read it for a book group and absolutely loved it. And it is called Olga Dies Dreaming by Sochi Gomez. It was a great book. It is about, it's funny, it starts off simple and then gets complicated, which I feel like is the theme of a lot of my books these days. It's about this woman named Olga who is Puerto Rican. She grew up in Brooklyn and she is a wedding planner. Sounds like a J-Lo movie. (laughs) Yeah, It it actually had very much, what was that? It had very much that J-Lo vibe, but a lot more complicated. So her brother is a congressman. Their mother is, left them when they were 12. She basically ran away because she believed in liberating Puerto Rico from the U.S.'s oppressive rule um, and make it a, a sovereign state. So it goes into the whole history of the colonialism around Puerto Rico being sort of owned by the U.S., but not really getting the support that other states get from the U.S. and how Puerto Ricans are treated like third class citizens and all of that. And it gives a lot of the history. It's kind of a lot to take in, but it's important to know. I mean, my husband's Puerto Rican. Josie's husband is Puerto Rican. So it was interesting to kind of hear things from this Puerto Rican family growing up in New York. So Olga is doing well for herself. She's a wedding planner, deals with all these rich white people all the time, was also dabbled in reality TV a little bit. And it's very, very much just like trying to forget about her mother, trying to be successful and live the American dream. And for her, that's just making a ton of money and you know having that kind of success. And for her brother, it's being involved in politics and making a change that way. It starts to get a little complicated because you find out that Olga is actually involved with the Russian mob and is taking kickbacks from them. Okay. Um, Didn't know, see her, that coming. Uh, yeah. yeah I know. It gets, it gets very kind of like a little bit like a soap opera. Prito is also kind of he's being blackmailed by an organization that's you know very wealthy and has certain things that they want. You find out that Prito is actually a closeted gay man. So that's like a whole other layer. But it's all about their experience growing up being Puerto Rican, kind of trying to live their versions of the American dream, but sort of interspersed between chapters are letters that they're getting from their mother because they haven't seen her in like 20 years. But every now and then she swoops in and kind of lets them know what she thinks about how they're living their lives and the decisions that they're making and is sort of like this puppet master within their lives, even though she's not actually there. And I'm going to read, I think this is the opening chapter, which is called The Napkins. And again, Olga is a wedding planner for very, very rich people. The telltale sign that you are at the wedding of a rich person is the napkins. At the not rich person's wedding, should a water spill, wa- should a waiter spill water or wine or a mixed drink of well liquor onto the napkin-covered lap of a guest, the beverage would beat up and roll off the cheap square of commercially laundered polyblend fabric down the guest's legs, eventually pulling on the hideous, overly busy pattern carpet designed and chosen specifically to mask these such stains. At the rich person's wedding, however, the napkins are made of a European linen fine enough for a Tom Wolf suit, suit, hand-pressed into smooth order and trimmed with a gracious hemstitch border. Should the waiter spill any of the luxury bottled water, vintage wine, or custom-crafted cocktails designed by a mixologist for the occasion, the napkin would dutifully absorb any moisture before the incident could irritate a couture-clad guest. Of course, at the rich person's wedding, the waitstaff don't spill things. They have been separated and elevated from their more slovenly, less coordinated brethren in a natural selection process of the service industry that judges on appearance, gait, and inherent knowledge of which side to serve from and which to clear. The rich person's wedding also never features hideous carpet, not because the venue or locale might not have had one, but because they had the money to cover it. 
just kind of like funny and interesting, all the little things that you don't think of when people have a ton of money to spend on things like the napkins. And I know exactly the napkin that they're talking about. And I hate those napkins. It's like the ones that beat up and and the liquid just rolls right off. Yeah. And then you're like, ah, get it off me before it spills on me. Yeah. But so what, where does this book go? Like what? It sort of follows the unraveling of their lives, which eventually leads to something better. Um, Like Olga, you know, she's never, she's deeply hurt by her mother having left them. She's sort of straddling like her Puerto Rican family's lives and like all these rich white people who she kind of has disdain for. It's not like she wants to be like them, but she sees how they live and sees how compared to how her family lives and just wants to make as much money as possible because for her, that's what success looks like, Um, which is very different from her brother, who is like, I'm going to get in the government. I'm going to enact change. But then he's being blackmailed on the side. So he's not even really making the change that he wants to make. So. Eventually, again, like always, I'm like, how much do I give away? Would you say these characters are sort of like a metaphor for what's going on in Puerto Rico? A little bit. Yeah. The kind of like, you know, trying to like the government getting involved, trying to make things right. And then somebody kind of going rogue and being like, screw this, the way these people are being treated, you know, it just isn't right. You know, it's about systemic racism and classism and colonialism and just I mean, what it's like to be Puerto Rican growing up in the United States. And it's like, it's your country, but it's not really your country. And most of your family is back in Puerto Rico. Like it follows when um, Hurricane Ida and then Maria hit Puerto Rico. And all of a sudden there are all these people who don't have power, don't have clean water, don't have access to food. And our, our government just was like, yeah, yeah, we're trying to get to you. But like, they knew the hurricane was coming. They didn't plan for it. If this had happened in the continental United States, people would have immediately had everything that they needed. But because it's Puerto Rico, they're like, yeah, yeah, eventually we'll, we'll get over there. We'll, we'll get to you. But, you know, they're just not treated the way other people in the U.S. are, which is, I think is something that we don't usually think of. Yeah. So it's interesting. You sort of like they're two very flawed characters. I mean, they're both, you know, on the take for for different reasons, but they're both pretty likable. Olga has ne- also never had like a, a serious relationship. She's dating some really rich, awful white guy just kind of as sport when you first meet her. And then eventually she gets into a relationship with someone who she's like, oh, I can actually have a meaningful relationship with this person. I actually like him. There are no steamy sex scenes. I'm sorry, Lauren. Mine doesn't have that either. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it was good. It kind of it started and the way it started off is very different. Like it just the 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 plot kept getting a little more and more complex. Like they kept adding these layers of like, okay, he's on the take and now he's gay and now he has HIV and now he's going to come out and like it was just sort of like, holy shit, what else could they possibly? Yeah. What other major like life themes could they mm. tell from this? But it's funny, my friend Jacina who recommended it is Puerto Rican and reading some parts of it, I'm like, oh, you definitely relate to this. Yeah. <laughs> Not that she's on the take from the mob or anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> Russian spy. This is like a Puerto Rican woman growing up in the United States. So like there are definitely things that I think, she, and growing up in New York City too, I think there are things she could relate to. So yeah, it, it was good. It was like educational. Like she definitely went into like the history of Puerto Rico and how the United States kind of took it over and what's that, what that's meant for the people living there. Um, but then it sort of had this like kind of soap opera type story woven above it. Like everyone in Olga's family is very much like a total character and very animated and over the top and entertaining. So it was it was like a it was a good fun read. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you need that. You know, it doesn't like when I asked earlier, do, do these characters sort of relate to what's going on in their lives relate to the history of Puerto Rico and like what's happening in Puerto Rico. Is there, is there a thematic tie between the two? And it doesn't always have to be that, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, sometimes you can just have people and experiences and and the representation of what their families are going through is just as important as any, you know, big sweeping thematic thing. Yeah. So that's, that was my book. Awesome. Lauren, you want to talk about yours? Sure. I'll do my best because it's a lot to take in. I feel like uh, it takes place in Denver, Colorado, but also a place called the Lost Territory. Um, and I, I'm still a little bit like confused if that's like New Mexico. Do you know what I mean? So the book is called Woman of Light by Callie Fajardo Anstein. Mm-hmm. And it is a fabulous, fabulous book. She is such a talented young writer. I mean, I assume she's young. I'm looking at her picture and she looks young to me, but she's so, <laughs> she's so accomplished. She's done so many things. 
you know, she received fellowships from McDowell, Yaddo, Hedgebrook, and Tin House, holds her MFA from the University of Wyoming. She's just amazing. Her writing is amazing. It follows the, uh, the story of a Chicano family, an indigenous Chicano family from different places. Par- Pardona is the f- where they originate. Then there's the lost territory. Like I said, I'm trying to figure that out. I should just Google it. Maybe it'll come up. And then Denver, Colorado. And it's, it's the saga of this family and sort of this displacement of their culture. I mean, you think about Mexico, you have the Native Americans and you have the Spanish. And then there's all this European influence outside of that because people, you know, like the mining and the traveling through from the North America to, you know, to, to Mexico. It's very, very interesting and something I've never read about before. So the, the main character is Luz Lopez and they call her Little Light. She has um, this basically like the sight, somewhat like her ancestors, where she can read tea leaves. But as the story moves on around her 18th birthday, she just starts to develop more of her sight. And um, it, it's like a real paradox to what it's like that romantic realist kind of thing mm. going on with, within this historical fiction book about the, the discrimination that she and her brother feel living in Denver as Mexicans. Um, there's the clan involved. There's a lawyer trying that she works for who's trying to work on a case of a, of a, a Mexican who was murdered by a police officer. A lot of it is so timely. I feel like I'm reading about what's going on in our world today, but then, you know, it's 1933 and it's, it's, it's what, what immigrants faced in that period of time it hasn't changed that much. At one part, part of the book, interestingly, she's uh, taking a course on typing to work for this lawyer and she's told to sit in the back of the room with the other dark people. And she goes back there there are three Italian women, sisters. Mm-hmm. And they, I mean, if you think about it, those, the Italians were the, the especially, I don't know about the West, because it's just not my area of my knowledge, but in the Northeast, the Italians were looked down on. It was like the Germans, the Italians, the Irish, and right? The Irish, yeah. And right. then eventually they integrated and were accepted. And then it was like the Puerto Rican people or the Mexicans, you know? So it's like this... Uh, Reading this book, I'm thinking this hasn't changed that much, except our Italians have been accepted. Mm-hmm. Irish have been accepted. Germans are now accepted. What's, you know, it's this whole, it's this cyclical thing that hasn't changed that much. Wait, can but, I jump in with something that you just reminded me of something from my book? There was just this one sentence in my book, and I just looked it up to see if it was true about how Puerto Rican women were sterilized at one point. And oh, it's actually true. Between the 1930s and 1970s, approximately one third of Puerto Rico's female population of childbearing age had undergone an operation that sterilized them because they were told that they needed to have it done for birth control. It's controlling women's bodies like it's not a new thing. And it's something that brown and black women have been Mm -hmm. dealing with for years. And now like white women are like, oh, shit, this is serious. Like we need to get involved. Okay, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Alyssa, what did you read? Well, Lauren had recommended it. Lauren had said, I should read The House on Mango Street. Mm. Oh, yeah. I love that um, book. That's, yeah. I remember from, we read that in high school. Yeah. It's really good. One of the mm. rare non-white man books. I remember, or maybe I had to read it in college. <laughs> I remember reading it connected to school somehow. I didn't read I, it in high school. Yeah, I don't remember. I've never read it. Um, and I still have never read it because when I went to the library, I started listening to it. Um, and it's so the original book, The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros, I started listening to it and she does her own audio for the audiobook. And in her introduction, she talks about who she is, how she became a writer, how she decided that she wanted to tell stories about herself as a Mexican living in the United States, um, because that's what she knew and understood. But she's a poet. By nature, that's that's her default. Um, so I started listening to the book, and it's about Esmeralda, who's a young girl in the streets of Chicago, Mexican family. Um, and I'm listening to it, and I was having a hard time following it with all the characters. So I went to the library to take it out, and they didn't have it. So I'm looking at the shelf for all the other Sandra Cisnero books, and there are quite a few, but this one was skinny and <laughs> <laughs> And I knew I'd have time to read it. Um, (laughs) And it's in two parts. Uh, It's the same book, but 
there's a Spanish and there's an English. And so it's actually you, half as long as that. I was say, so it's exactly. <laughs> um, and I, of course, can't read the Spanish, but I really loved that it was presented both ways. And I also really, really loved this book. It was super easy to read in a day. And it's the story of... Wait, what's the title? It's, oh, Sandra Cisneros, Martita, I Remember You. And it starts with the woman, Karina, who is a Mexican woman who lives in Chicago. And she's, it's like a Saturday. Her husband is away traveling, I think. And she sends her kids off to the library and she is stripping varnish off of a built-in hutch in one of the apartments in this multifamily building that they own. And she and her husband are doing all of the housework for these apartments. And, you know, she talks about how it kind of like the, the mundane life of adulting. On the one hand, she's really proud that she and her husband own this and this is how they make some money. But on the other hand, they're then responsible for all of the upkeep. And, and this is what she's working on. And as she's working on it, her mind starts to wander back to after high school, in college, before college, you know, late teens, early 20s. Um, she's waiting to hear back from a school that she had applied to for writing. And she moves to Paris for a year. And she is in Paris and she doesn't know anybody, but she meets Martita, who is from Argentina, and Paola, who is Italian. and. The short story really is about these three young women who have these interactions in Paris, but it's told through letters. And so because it's Karina rereading the letters, we never see her letters. It's only the ones to her from Martita or to her from Paola. But then Paola. the rest of the story, I had a student spelled the same way. And, and it was I, Paola? And it was Paola, but she also was an Italian. She uh, was mm-hmm. Latina. Uh, so I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. No, well, you might be saying it right. It could, well, she could be this Latina. one is Italian. The one in the book is Italian. So I'm going to take it from you <laughs> that, <laughs> that I'm saying it wrong. But it was one of the things that I really liked about this book is they lose touch. They, they're together for a year and then they each travel to different continents and they write letters, but then they start to lose touch. And at one point, Martita is having a letter written. Well, Karina is writing a letter to Martita, but it's only being composed in, in Karina's head. And it's... Um, I'm stirring my coffee with a spoon, rereading the last letter you sent me years ago. Today, Saturday, at 11.14 in the morning, I'm at my kitchen table thinking of you, Martita, wherever you are. I should have answered your letter. Some things have happened to me that were wonderful, and some parts were only good because they passed. When things were bad, I kept thinking better was just around the corner. And by the time I had the energy to raise my head and take a look at my life, years and years had passed. Forgive me. I didn't want to admit to myself this was all I had to tell you, this life of mine. At the time, it didn't seem enough. Not what I expected, not what I had ordered, not what I wanted to share. Do you understand? And I loved that piece of, I think, well, it's something I can relate to in terms of, me too. I don't have anything to say. Nothing's that exciting in my life. Or... This is the only excitement in my life and it's really mundane. And so I, I, I feel like it's not worth me putting effort into sharing it. And then time passes and then, you know, you have these relationships in your head with these people who were once really important to you, but all these relationships really are just memories. And they come out and you remember the people um, at different parts. There is another at the end of the story. Again, it's an unwritten letter. But it says, let's see, she says, sometimes when I look at the trees in winter, how their bare branches give off a violet light or the scent of a baguette or the Moroccan design on an antique doorknob or how a window opens out instead of up. They remind me of those days I lived beside you, Martita, though I don't tell anyone. I think it without regret. We don't write each other anymore, but I still think of you, Marta, a remembrance, a souvenir, a memory. Martita, I remember you. And it's that, you know, you just these little triggers of, 
emotion, really. And that's one of the things that starts the book, too, is um, she finds a letter. She rereads the letter and she says, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I remember the emotions. I remember the feelings. And so it's this short little story of these three young women and what they did in Paris that year and how important it is to her all these years later, remembering back. Makes me miss letters. I know. (laughs) People don't write letters anymore. Like we all text and there are emails, even emails starting to die out. And there's like... Like text becomes a shorthand, like, oh, when can I throw in an emoji? emoji? I don't yeah, want to use like, words. I'm going to use like a exactly. little hieroglyphic to express how I'm feeling. And like, I need to be as concise as possible. Like I, getting a letter in the mail is awesome. And like, mm-hmm. and you have to sit down and compose an entire thought and put that entire thought out to a person with no response from them for a while. And there's, there's something really yeah. special about yeah. that. It's like, you just throw yourself out there and yeah, it's poetic. there's not it's this beautiful. instant. Yeah. You know what I love about this book that you're telling us about, Alyssa, is that it's making me think of all the times, like when you lose touch with people and you, we've all lost touch with each other over periods of time. And there's this piece of me that's like, there's these two reasons, silly reasons, really, why people lose touch with people that they love. And it's like this bad stuff happens to you and you don't want to tell them about that. You want to hide it or you want to, you know, or good stuff happens to you and you don't want to gloat about it or, you know what I mean? It's like, and then or you're no, like, or nothing's the, happening or nothing's to you happened. And you nothing to right. report. And you have nothing to say. And it seems like this silly reason to get and reach out. And it's almost like, it's almost like time does that no matter what, good or bad. Or it just feels weird sometimes when you just say, hey, so, you know, my life is just going along normally. How are you? Like, how do you make that letter? Or how do you write right. to someone and say something terrible is happening or something great is happening? It always feels like... Like there's no reason to reach back out to someone that makes sense. And, but we've all felt that way. And we all just wish that other person would reach out and just be like, hi. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, I guess texting is good for that because you can just do that. Be like, hey, I was thinking about you. Hi. There's no pressure on that. Whereas if you're going to compose a letter (laughs) to someone, you got to fill the page or pick out a card. You know, it's like, yeah. And letters letters were a form of entertainment. You look forward to them. I mean, think like when I read the, um, the Potato Peel Pie Society mm, book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I don't have the title at the tip of my tongue there, but um, it was written in letters. And I mean, those people on the island and, you know, they they would look forward to those letters. It was, kept them looking forward to something in the bleakest of times. It was, all, it was also had like, it was something physical that you could open and you can hold. Like everything is data now, you know, like we send yeah. each other text messages. They eventually get deleted. They, you know, you're not going to keep like love text messages the way you'd keep a love letter. It's screenshot. Just, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Right. Then where do you put it? You know, it's still I know, like it's I know. And do you, will you ever really go back and read them? Exactly. But a letter that you can unfold and read, there's just something so oh, nice God, about that. It's like how much more ephemeral have our relationships and have, have our, our identity become because it's all digital? Like mm. we've all become so ephemeral and ghost-like now because there's no tangible thing to us anymore. It's like I'm right. looking at my computer right now talking to you guys. We all used to sit around on each other's beds and talk. You know, and there's something so tangible about it. And I'm also thinking about how many books I've got stored on the same laptop. You know what I mean? It's like everything I've written, it's all here, but it's just such a, like a tiny little thing. I don't know. It's all, it's all in one place too. You know, like your computer has everything. It has your music, it has your books, it has your correspondence. It all lives in one place. It's not as special or unique anymore. Right. We used to have shelves for stuff. And we used to have closets and, you know, secret places. And my daughter still loves that stuff. She's into this thing now where I'm by, she wants her journal and she wants to be able to lock it. And mm. because she wants oh, that little I remember little my daughters thing. did that too. Yeah. That's awesome that, that little kids are still into that. Oh, she loves it because yeah. it's her precious little thing that she can put in her closet and that, it, you know, there's a bookshelf for it. And it's almost like she's reverting against like all this technology. She wants more stuff, you know. Mm. Well, well, that is interesting because I feel like people still keep physical journals. Like I feel like journaling is a thing and people, it's not, usually not digital. It's usually people mm. have like and scrapbooking and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, I wanted cool. to read a short part from the acknowledgments at the end of the book because I think the way it's written, it also highlights Sandra Cisneros's poetic abilities and and her way with words. Oh, at one point in the book, she talked about how there was all these girls piling in to sleep in an apartment and there was no room on the floor (laughs) and they all slept on sleeping bags on the floor. And she referred to it as their bodies by the morning 
they slept like salamanders and their bodies all twisted into the S. And, and I, I love, I don't know if you've ever gone looking for salamanders under rocks, uh, you know, in, in forests or by stream beds, but have you, Alyssa? Yes, I have. Salamanders are the cutest stinking little they creatures. A lizard. A lizard. And, a lizard. <laughs> and they do, they have this S to their body with how they move and how they, you know, will freeze. And, and it just was so perfect the way it was described with the, the girls sleeping as S's with the salamanders. Okay. So in the acknowledgements, the other thing I like is, is lifting up all the women um, that she does. There's something to be said for women who lift up other women and not yeah. compete with them. Yes. So this says, my Martita is based on all the women who rescued me during my years as a cloud and ever after, just as Karina is all the women whose lives have touched my own. I do not know why some lives resonate so ineffably within me that they oblige me to sit and stare at dust motes. Each is a note humming beyond the range of human hearing, but whose reverberation enriches my being. That's beautiful. This woman is such a poet. What a beautiful. So beautiful. So I think, you know, I never would have known this author had Lauren not recommended it. Although the house on Mango Street apparently is like a must read now for everybody in high schools and colleges and writing schools, but I would, I'm going to have to find some of her poetry and, and read it. So thank you, Lauren. You're welcome. And she spoke about how she couldn't relate to anything her her, um, writing professor was saying when he would talk about, he made a reference to a, a person's emotions to, to being like in the attic or in the basement. And this was not, anything she could relate to because she had always only lived in apartments growing up in the attic that I'm going to put air quotes around attic. The ad, there was no such thing as an attic where you stored antiques. And and there was no such thing as like a dingy basement that had cobwebs. Like these were spaces that people lived in. And, and so she was feeling really frustrated with all of the material that she was reading and, and the way that her, um, professors were trying to get the students to to pull imagery because it was so white privileged it based experiences and that and that was when she said I'm going to write about what I know and what I know is being a Mexican living in Chicago mm-hmm. and and what my life is like and so her stories are unique and they're important and they speak to these other parts of the world that we don't have addicts. Yeah, that we need to hear. So I read, per Lauren's suggestion, I read Gods of Jade and Shadow. Did you like it? Moreno Garcia. I loved it. I blew right through this book. I know, I loved it too. I seriously, I was like, go over there, child. Yes, you can watch more TV. Yes, turn on the iPad. Like I was a horrible (laughs) mom for a day because I really just wanted to get through this book. Was she, was that her first book? No, 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 no. She. So by the time she'd written this, she had written The Beautiful Ones, Prime Meridian, and she edited a fantasy, the World Fantasy Award winning She Walks in Shadows, which was called Chithulu's Daughters here in the U.S. Um, she's also a publisher. She jo- Josie, what's your name? Sylvia Moreno Garcia. When I first picked this up, I thought, oh, it's since we were all talking about reading um, Latinx writers, I thought that she was... Mexican writing in Mexico, and that this was a translation. And then as I was reading this book, I said, no, this is structured like an American book. And mm-hmm. by the time I was halfway through it, I was like, okay, I'm going to look her, look her up. And this was, honestly, I sat down and I read this book in a day. I just couldn't put it down because it was in that structure that I'm used to. And what I mean by that is the five-act structure where you have an inciting incident, end of act one, strong midpoint, end of act two. And it's you know set up like that. Within that structure, she's used... Mayan mythology, like the Mayan death mythology, which is just so very cool. And I know, I know right up your alley. I know, I know. I love (laughs) the underworld. I love all that stuff. So this was the story of Cassiopeia, uh, Cassiopeia or Cassiopeia, but depends on how you want to say it. Cassiopeia Tun. And she lives in this small town called Ukamil and it's in the Yucatan Peninsula Peninsula in 1927. So it's like art deco, the jazz age which is also such an interest. It's been so long since I've read a book that was set in the jazz age, like what we think of as like the great Gatsby era and all that stuff. So she's this girl. It has this great setup where 
a Cinderella-like story. Um, her father, her mother ran away with her father. Her father was a little bit more native and they were very proud of their Spaniard roots. They were very proud of being pale skinned and she's darker skinned and dark haired, dark eyed, that great profile with that nose. You know what I'm talking about? It's right here on the cover of the book, that profile that I just adore. And the father dies. And so she and her mother are left destitute. The grandfather's this wealthy man, big house, best house in Ucamil, which is like, you know, best house in Ashland, whatever. The mother and daughter are sort of forced to work like to pay off her mother's for for leaving the family. How dare you? How dare you run off with a man that you love and leave the family? And the and the grandfather's just this bitter, horrible old man. And of course Cassiopeia is she's angry, but she's also, you know, she will not be put down, especially by her brother Martin. I mean her cousin Martin, who thinks that he's, you know, he's going to inherit, so she should do as he says and he makes her polish his boots. It's just this terrible relationship. And she constantly embarrasses him without even knowing it because she's so defiant and he hates her for that. And um, she hates him because he's, you know, a lazy, entitled jackass. Basically, Mm. (laughs) He's just a jackass. So while the whole family's away to bring um, grandpa who feels not, who feels horrible, like every bone in his body is always aching, aching to take him to one of the cenotes, which is like, Dotted throughout the Yucatan Peninsula, there are these limestone caves, and some of them have filled up with rainwater, and there are these perfect, clear, crystalline sources of water that were considered by the Mayans of the time, and the Mayan culture that used to be all throughout the Yucatan Peninsula, to be these sacred spaces. And they used to leave offerings in these. They even used to leave virgins tied up to die in them and drown in them, or, you know, or they'd... It was the Mayan culture, you know, they did a lot of beheading. That was kind of their thing. <laughs> and we're going to find out about that. <laughs> um, so they're off at the cenote to give him the healing waters. And she, he, he leaves this key behind that he's always kept around his neck. She opens up the case with the key because she's like, if there's money in it, I'm going to steal the money and I'm going to run away. And that's that. I love this girl, by the way. She's totally up my alley. So she opens it and it's full of bones. And, um, while she's opening it, she like gets a bone shard inside her finger and the bone shard like digs down into her. And then Hun Kame, who's the Lord of Zabalba, which is the underworld, he's the God of death, rises from the bones. It's like he puts himself together and he's drawing power from, he's drawing life from her. And they're sort of locked together in this, she's going to obviously wither away and die and he's going to become more and more human. And so what they need to do is get all of the bits of him that are missing, uh, his finger, one of his ears, one of his eyes, and uh, this jade necklace of power. I know, right? There are these parts of him that are missing that he needs to get back in order for him to go back and be the Lord of the underworld. Now, he was cut up like this and put in this box and lived in this horrible, because he's still alive. You can't really kill an immortal. All this was done to him by Vakub Kame, who is his brother. His name, Hun Kame means first death or one death. Vakub Kame means seven deaths. And they're twin brothers. They're both the lords of the dead, the lords of Zabalba. And it was basically like a coup. And so all of these parts of him are scattered throughout all of Mexico and even parts of the United States. Like they go to uh, New Mexico at one point to retrieve, I I don't know, was it his finger or his ear? I'm not sure. One of them. one of them. So they, a body part. it's very much like this. It's a very uh, American or Western structures. When I was reading this, I was like, was this really translated from Spanish? Because this doesn't feel like a Mexican novel. Like it doesn't have that structure. It has a very American Western yeah, I agree with you. structure. I didn't think of that until you mentioned it, but you're right. It's Yeah. And the way that it moves, it's it, this book just blows through plot and great character development. The, the relationship with her cousin Martin. So Cassiopeia and Martin are sort of like, they become the champions, Cassiopeia for Cassiopeia for Hun Kame, the, uh, Martin for Vakub Kame. And then they are the ones who have to sort of get through this gauntlet in the underworld and whoever gets to the end of it and wins, they're, that they're the champion for who will become the lord of the underworld. It's beautiful. It's so well done. They're traveling all through, like they go to Mexico City and there's this great thing where she's like, she's like, everybody hates Mexico City, but everybody ends up there. It's like this great, 
this tour through Mexico, um, obviously there's a love story. She starts to fall more and more in love with him and it doesn't end like you'd think it would end, but it has the perfect ending. What I loved about this story was she weaves in a lot of history, the history of Mexico, the revolution and all of that stuff inside this very exciting, very Western style action-based story that I respond to, that I love with all of this preservation of Mayan traditions. And she even has a glossary in the back that Mm -hmm. for all of the different terms. And, you know, a lot of them are difficult to, for us to think about. Um, So like the satsun is a stone mirror and it's a stone used for divination. So I I have no idea how that works, but she even talks about it. So one of the things that she says in the glossary is there's no such thing as a hamad as a homogenous Mayan language. There are 29 recognized Mayan languages spoken throughout Mexico and Central America. The way these languages are represented in Latin script has changed over time. Therefore, if you open a 19th century Mayan dictionary, you may find the spelling of a word is different from a contemporary dictionary. So she uses, she's really trying to piece together the Mayan heritage and keep that. And talking about Mexican heritage, which is sort of like with these Spanish influences on top of that, all in the guise of being this very, this great fast paced love story that I loved. Um, it's a supernatural romance novel, very much in the vein that like I write yeah. with a slight historical element to it. it it's not a history lesson. You're not going to come out of this going, I know everything about the Mexican revolution yeah. now, but <laughs> you do feel a lot more in touch with the culture. And that's, that's why I love books like this. I love books like this. She's speaking, she's totally speaking my language. She structured this book in a way that's like popcorn for me. Like I would watch this movie. <laughs> I would read this book, but yeah. she's doing it with her own, with Sylvia Moreno Garcia's own, not just flavor. It's like her sense of history. This is, this is um, a mythology that she identifies with. And these are people, you know, these are Brown people who are part of her culture. And I just love it. I think it's, um, it's such a great read. Like if you're, if you're into books that are anything like mine or any type of supernatural romance, you're going to blow through this book in five seconds. I love that there's an index in the back with information. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember looking at that while I read it. I loved it too, because I love to read books based on fairy tales, mythology, legends, anything. (laughs) Me too. Me too, man. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, So when I saw that, I thought, huh, you know, I've read books based on North mytho- Norse mythology. You know, I loved American Gods. Well, I think I'm going to love this book. And it, it really hit the spot for me. It, mm-hmm. it filled something like I had never read mythology, Mayan mythology. And Neither it, have I. Yeah, and it just... When you look at the pyramids, like, I don't know, I've always, those pyramids in the jungle and all that yeah. stuff and the feathered serpent and all that stuff. But I've never really... I've never really read a book that was based around mind mythology. And I've read a lot of books that were based around any, all different types right. of mythology. Right. This was, this was special and beautiful. Very special book. I loved it. Yeah. So I'm glad you liked it. I did. Thank you, Lauren. <laughs> you know, I love recommending books. It's part of my job. How do you guys find most of your books? Like, how do you decide what to read? Mm-hmm. I browse a lot of them shelves. Are- our recommendations. Like I found, uh, I happened to see my friend recommend uh, Walk Me to the Corner, which is a graphic novel for adults. And I was like, hey, I think we're going to do graphic novels. Do you like that? And she loved it. So I'm like, I have that one. It's cool. And then one of my former students who, my gosh, she graduated from college this year, Carly. Hi, Carly. She gave mm-hmm. me a whole list of, of books to read. And so Tipping the Velvet, I think is the name of the one that I just took out. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I literally just asked people, what are you reading? I asked Lauren. She told me. <laughs> I, uh, Lauren, I, I have a friend who's a librarian. I, yeah. I, browse, I look at book covers and I know people like, don't judge a book by its cover. I do. I do <laughs> too. If I like the cover, I'll pick it up and read the, the, the sleeve or whatever you call that flap and what do you call that, Josie? Well, it depends. There's the back copy. There's the inner flap. There's the, the it depends flap. on, yeah. The yeah, inner, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll read that and then maybe a first couple of lines of the book and decide. Remember when Barnes and Noble was a thing and they had the coffee shop and we'd go yeah. and just oh, wander yeah. around Barnes and Noble. Or and border books, you mean? Borders. Mm-hmm. borders. Oh, yeah. yeah. I drank borders, a lot of coffee yeah. at Borders. That's not even around anymore, is I, it? Oh, no. Neither I don't gone. think it is. Book browsing. Mm-hmm. I loved. I loved our reads this week. I really want you guys to read my book. 
I'll put it on my I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it's it. Definitely. so good. And, and I mean, maybe it's, this is like the first serious book I've read in a while. You know what I mean? Like I've been mm-hmm. reading a lot of escapist books. I mean, not to say this isn't, but it's a little bit more literary or a little more meaty. It just spoke to you. Like every now and again, you just yeah. get one of those books where even if it, you're like, I'm not in the mood for this. And then you start reading it and you're like, all right, I'm in the mood for this book. Maybe not this yeah. whole genre, but this book I'm in the mood for. Yeah. It's always yeah. good to try. Reading a graphic novel should be interesting though. Lauren, your daughter got Scions? She got the arc? Yes. Yes. Right here. No way. How, where is she in it? Over there. Let me see where she's at. Oh my God. She's getting you know through she it. She said, she goes, mom, I don't like Daphne. I don't know if I can read this. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> oh right. Because you know, I don't know why she says that, but you'll have to ask her. Oh, no, no. She's... But from like the last from. Yeah. Daphne's yeah. kind of like the bad guy. And in... right. So she's like really into it now. Oh, good. Good, good. Yeah. I knew so I'd change like, your mind. Yeah. Can we can we have and, Anna I mean, write a review? Like, how do you how do you choose what reviews I make know. the covers of the books? Jerry? She's right. really into it. And she loved uh, the cover. Well, the reviewed by Anna. It. The reviews? Yeah. Oh, well, you, I don't know. You send them out to publications for reviews and stuff like, like that. I know but you she... want a famous person's name on your book, but it'd be kind of <laughs> nice to have like a young adult. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Have, have a, a real review. <laughs> your biggest fan. Anna, daughter of Lauren says. Yeah, she's really into it. She's really, she's loving it. So. But we're doing um, like, we're doing a Scions art giveaway on my social media right now. So I'm, I'm going to start getting that from people. So when we do the giveaway, I, we're going to start getting people's like, honest reviews of it actually Josie that'd be an interesting contest have people write reviews and then pick the best like one-liner to put on to the put final my copy book. of the book <laughs> this is such yeah. a cool this cover is awesome I'm glad you I know that we went it's through so a lot pretty. yeah uh, yeah you should we should have her and talk about it I'd love that I have to, I'll read it next do you know Pia picked the colors did she did she really yeah Good job, I said, what colors do you want it to be? She's like, I want it to be this purple and this blue because those are my favorites. And I said, well, you can't argue with that. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I knew. She did a good job. Like I like she the did. colors she picked. I think they work really well. It's a family affair. Yeah. Everyone's involved. Is this the last book in series, or did you say you had like a couple? Oh, we've got more. I've got uh, Science, um, Timeless, Outcasts. And... So after Science, there's three more. And I've yeah. already written two more. After science. My, my tennis partner blew through the first three. I was like, oh, well, I have this friend. And she wrote this. This series. <laughs> She read them all. She blew through them. So she's pretty psyched for this, too. Okay, good. I'm glad Anna's enjoying them, too. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. So thanks, everyone. And yeah, thank you. Good night. Bye. Bye, Bye guys. Bye, everyone. Bye. You've been listening to Fiction Between Friends. To find the show notes for this episode or to subscribe and get new episodes delivered automatically, visit fictionbetweenfriends.com. Also, if you happen to have a moment and you've liked what you've heard, please help support our podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. We would be immensely grateful. Thank you for listening. Listening.